Hello, everyone. We are going on 20 years now in our journey with BBNR to bring holistic health to the mainstream. It has really all come from a desire to find ways to flatten out the bumps in the road of our lives and be grateful for when days go well. So much innovation and insight is coming out on health and wellness on a daily basis. It's sometimes hard to keep up. We are so grateful for the speakers who join us on this podcast and to all of the guests that come to our Georgetown conference and to those that join us at Gasparilla every year to share their wisdom. At the end of the day, we hope that we have made you curious enough to try some of these tips in your day-to-day life. We hope that you felt their impact on your life as well as the lives of the people that you love. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. No one has spent more time observing and documenting wild wolves than retired National Park Ranger Rick McIntyre who has watched wolves in America's national parks for more than 40 years, 25 of those years in Yellowstone National Park. Rick is credited with the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park, one of the most celebrated ecological experiments in history and an extraordinary conservation victory. We are so excited to have Rick on our podcast today. Welcome, Rick, to Health Gig. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me onto your show. Thank you very much. Where are you coming from right now? Where are you right now? I'm in a little tiny town in Montana. It's called Silvergate. In the summer, it's geared toward tourists. So we have a lot of nice visitors here. But in the winter, there's only about seven of us. (laughs) Oh, wow. In the winter, they don't plow the road much past my cabin. So because of deep snow, it's essentially a dead-end road. And that limits traffic as well. So it's a nice little Montana town, and I'm about a mile from the entrance to Yellowstone National Park. We just can imagine you there. Is it cold right now, or is it pretty nice? No, today was actually a warm day. We've had temperatures down to about eight degrees or so, but today, for some reason, by our standards for this time of the year, it's been warm and sunny. So I was taking off layers today as I was watching the walls. We want to begin by just asking you a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the Wolf Project. I worked for the National Park Service for a long time in other parks, including Denali in Alaska, Glacier in Montana, Death Valley in California, a number of other places. So I started here in 1994, which was the year before the Wolf Reintroduction. And because I had been around wolves in other national parks, Denali and and Glacier, I was designated the wolf interpreter. Now, that's because I was in what the Park Service calls the interpretation division. Those are the rangers that do the campfire talks, the nature walks, slideshows, interpretation in that way, interpret nature. So all my programs in 94 were uh, on the subject of the wolf reintroduction. And then the reintroduction was approved that summer. So when I returned the following spring, the initial group of wolves had already been brought down from Canada and had just been released. So then my talk switched over to 
how the wolf reintroduction program was working now that the wolves had been released. So it was mostly doing talks. But what happened that was totally unexpected by all of us, including myself, was the wolves turned out to be very visible. Normally, if you are working or visiting a place where there are wolves, let's say Glacier National Park, you almost never see them because they live in the forest. But Yellowstone is mostly open country. And the wolves spent most of their time in places where we could see them. So on a typical morning, that first spring, when I got back, I would find the wolves. I would have a tripod and spotting scope set up. And then park visitors would see a ranger and they would pull over, ask what I was doing. And I would explain that I had found the wolves and invite them to look through my scope. As soon as I would do that, more and more people would arrive. So I attracted a lot of attention back in those days, but it was all for a good cause because I got to give people one of their peak experiences of lives coming to a national park and getting to see wolves. Rick, that's what you still do today, right? You're down there. That's how I met you with your scope, looking at the wolves and inviting those of us that were there to see them with you. So you still do that today, but just in a different capacity. Yeah. And I think when you were here, I think you were what, 11 years old at that time. You yeah. were, is that right? Yeah. Just a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is amazing the work that you do. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. And because wolves in the past have been such a controversial species, I feel that every time I see, I help the next person have an experience with a wolf, it's very likely that's going to be one more person on the side of wolves. So that's part of the deal too. Rick, can you tell us about when the wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone in the 1990s? I wrote a whole book about that back in the 90s called War Against the Wolf. To try to condense a, an awful lot of history, when the first European settlers came over to what is now the United States, let's we'll talk about the pilgrims and 1620. I'm originally from Massachusetts. Those English settlers had already exterminated wolves in their home country. So when they arrived in the New World, they were taken aback when they realized that America was so primitive and backward that wolves were still here. So one of the first things the pilgrims did on arrival was to pass a cash bounty to encourage people to kill wolves. The Dutch people that settled Manhattan Island, they did exactly the same thing. So if you think that wolves were so common on Manhattan Island in the early 1600s that the Dutch government felt that they needed to kill every one of them and offer money to do that, that gives you a pretty good idea of how often people were seeing wolves and how big an impact it had on their psyche at the time. So they regarded them as evil, as something that was blocking the advance of civilization. And to get into a whole different uh, subject, but something that relates to it, you've probably thought about how that also relates to how they were regarding Native American people that they were meeting in, in, in North America, that these were two things we need to deal with and figure out how we're going to overcome this stuff. So it, it's a sad story in both counts. Why wasn't it until the 1990s 
that we began to see the benefit of wolves and what they could do to the ecosystem. The original government agency that was responsible for killing off wolves in our country was the U.S. Biological Survey. And then later, that agency was renamed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they continued the wolf extermination program. So if I had been born maybe 100 years earlier, and instead of being a park ranger, if I had worked for the U.S. Biological Survey, then that may well have been my job in the old days. And they were very effective in doing it. There's so much history to talk about, but essentially, if you think of the lower 48 states, Wolves were native in every one of them, including Florida. And when the government finally wound down the the killing of the wolves in the late 50s on into the early 60s, the only ones that were left were in the lake states. And so throughout New England, the South, the Midwest, and the West, they were completely eradicated. They were certainly still killing them off in Alaska and Canada, but just the three lake states had a native population that survived at that time. Now, getting back to Yellowstone, certainly Yellowstone originally had a thriving wolf population when it was set aside about 150 years ago. But the early park rangers, like everyone else in the country, going back to the pilgrims, were in total agreement that the wolves had to be finished off. So once again, if I had been a ranger in the early years of Yellowstone, that would have been my assignment. And where I'm based right now in my cabin, uh, when I drive into the park, it's only about maybe 12 miles or so to the west of me, to the spot where in 1926, the last two Yellowstone wolves were shot and killed. So I go by that spot every day. And that's a very sad part of Yellowstone history. But If you think that even the park rangers in Yellowstone believe that the right thing to do was to exterminate wolves, that's a pretty good case history of how seriously our country was anti-wolf. They had a bounty on them, right? The the government paid to kill the wolves. Not only paid people to, let's say, private citizens to kill them, but hired outdoorsmen to, to go out and kill them with poison, with guns, with traps, everything that you can imagine. So why are wolves important to our ecosystem? Why is it we want to have wolves in the Yellowstone? There's so much to say we could spend our entire time discussing that very issue. So let me make a a few points that relate directly to Yellowstone National Park. So we already spoke about how they were native animals, but the rangers killed them off. One of the consequences of destroying a native species was that they were the natural control over the elk population. So where I do most of my work is in Lamar Valley. And after the wolves were killed off several decades later, the Park Service commissioned some plant researchers to do a study to see what sort of elk population could be supported by the native plants, mainly grasses. And they reported to the park superintendent that for that section of the park, probably about 6,000 would be a a healthy, balanced number of elk. But with no predators to control them, the rangers had also killed off all the mountain lions. They increased to about 30,000. So it would be the same principle if a farmer or a rancher had a fenced-off pasture. But let's say could support in good health 
a herd of 30 cows. But imagine what would happen if they put 300 cows in that same pasture. All the grass would be chewed down to the roots. The animals would start to starve. They'd be in poor health. I think everyone can understand that comparison. So on a far larger scale, Yellowstone is 2 million acres. That's what was happening here. And it's going to be hard for you to believe this, but the original solution that the Park Service came up with in the 50s and the 60s to that problem was to issue uh, firearms to rangers. And in the wintertime, they were told to go out and shoot and kill as many elk as they could. That was their solution to the problem. And then it was steering them in the face, but it just took a long time for them to, to realize what the only real solution to the problem was, and that was to bring wolves back. That would be the solution to the problem. And that's exactly what happened in January of 1995. So they played this enormous, important role in predation. How do you figure out what wolves are doing? How do you track wolves? When I was working for the Park Service, I finished up a few years ago to write my books. I had telemetry equipment. And you've probably all seen documentaries how wildlife researchers will put a radio collar on a wild animal and then release it. The collar sends out a radio signal. And then when you have the equipment to receive that signal, you can pick up your antenna, you can move it back and forth, and you have a rough idea of the direction that the animal is in. Then you take out your binoculars or your spotting scope and you try to find it. Because wolves live in packs, that means that even if there's just one wolf with a radio collar in a given pack, an average pack here is about 10 wolves. So that gives you a pretty good chance of finding them. So my job was to get the signal, then try to find the wolves, record what they were doing. And then when park visitors came along, help them see the wolves and interpret to them what the wolves were doing. But as I was watching the wolves, I would have a tape recorder in hand and I would take notes on pretty much everything the wolves were doing, sleeping, playing, fighting, chasing elk, whatever they were doing. So it, it would be very similar if you folks, let's say, were employed as an anthropologist to study a remote tribe in the Amazon jungle. You'd want to be with the people that you were studying and recording pretty much everything you could of how they earned their living, what their social customs were, everything you could so that you would have a better understanding of what their lives were like. That's pretty much what I was doing with the wolves. What are the benefits of living in a pack if you're a wolf? We've talked about how wolves are social animals, just like people are. And it's fair to say that most wolf packs are really the equivalent of a large extended human family. So a few years after a pack has been formed, and a pack would be formed by a single female, probably leaving her family, setting out on her own, meeting a male that's also left his pack. They find a territory, they have pups the next spring, they raise them. Those pups, when they're yearlings, they help their parents raise the next litter of pups, etc. So after a family has been formed, maybe a few years down the line, they average about 10 members. The alpha male is the highest ranking male. Normally, he would be the father, the patriarch, and then the alpha female would be the mother, the matriarch. And 
So that's what it is. It's a large extended family where the older sons and daughters help the parents raise the younger kids in the family. And they stay together, the alpha male and the alpha female, like they're just together through their lifetime. Is that right? That would happen a lot. Yes. It's not exactly the same as what we would call monogamy. It's not exactly the same. Because let's just say if it was a male and two sisters arrived on the scene, then it would be a pack of three adults and he would probably breed both of them. However, they do have the hierarchy that we mentioned. So you can only have one top male and one top female. And you'll probably be very interested to know that before we thought of it, wolves being such a smart species, they had already perfected the concept of a matriarchal society. So it's fine and dandy if you get to be an alpha male, but that only means that you work for the boss and you do what the boss tells you to do. So uh, very advanced, don't you think? Very advanced. And they're very efficient, right? Like it's an incredible woman-run family and organization. In watching wolves, the impression that I get is that the alpha female always is mindful of her agenda. We're going to den here this spring. Then when the pups are older, we're going to take them over to that meadow. And then when it's winter, we're going to go over here. And then we're going to use a different den next spring. I found a better site. And then we need to deal with those wolves of the West because they're encroaching on our territory. But let's see if we can maybe gain some territory by fighting the guys to the north. And the males just kind of say, oh, okay. And just go along (laughs) with it. (laughs) Do you have a favorite wolf? I know you've written books on so many, but which one's your favorite? or Which one do you like to talk about? That's a tough question for me. It's like for a parent, who's your favorite uh, child? My first book, The Rise of Wolf 8, is about one of the original Canadian wolves that was brought down. And he was the runt of his litter. He was picked on and bullied, but grew up to be a, a hugely successful wolf. So I always have a soft spot in my heart for him because of how far he got. You may know that part of H's story was when he was the equivalent of a teenager, he joined a pack after the father wolf had been illegally shot and killed and adopted and raised the eight pups that had been born to that male. That was the first case that we had of adoption in Yellowstone. So eight, despite being young and undersized and inexperienced, took on that responsibility. He joined the pack, helped the mother wolf raise those pups. And then one of those adopted sons grew up to be what many of us consider to be our greatest wolf, and that was Wolf 21, who learned everything he knew about being a male wolf, a father wolf, an alpha male from his adopted father. And 21 had genetics from his father that caused him to grow up to be one of the, the biggest and the strongest wolves we've ever had. He grew up to be much bigger than his adopted father, but was always very respectful to eight. And when 21 was very young and very impressionable, he saw eight fight a much larger alpha male, defeat him, and then choose to spare his life. He had the power of life and death over this defeated opponent. And 21 witnessed his adopted father let the guy go. 
And as I followed 21's career after that, when he became an alpha male, as far as you know, he never lost a fight with other packs. He followed that tradition that he had learned when he was young and never killed a defeated opponent. So he learned that from his adopted father. That's incredible. Is that a cognitive skill that a wolf would have? It's hard to think that a wolf can learn something like that. It's a fascinating question that you're bringing up. We've had other wolves. I I write about an alpha female that during her reign, her pack is responsible for killing at least nine wolves that I know of, probably more than that. So she was especially violent, especially vicious, almost like a character out of Game of Thrones. And 21 was at the opposite end of that spectrum. So my take on 21 is that he did pattern his life after Wolf 8. As I said, that was his role model. And so I think he just grew up with an understanding, okay, you have responsibilities in life to protect your family, to feed your family. When he was young, 8 would play with him a lot. So when 21 was a father himself, he carried on that tradition. He played with his pups quite a bit too. He basically probably just remembered everything how life was like when he was young with his adopted father, and then understood that that's what he was supposed to do when he was a father himself. Now, you asked about my favorite wolves. So getting back to 21 for a second, I told you that he never killed a wolf during his long life, but he had a relative that I think he considered killing a lot of times. And that was the main character in my third book, my current book, And that's titled The Redemption of Wolf 302. So can we talk about uh, good old 302 for a moment? Yes, yes. Now, I don't know if you two ladies have ever run into guys like this. Hopefully not. But 302 was just totally drop-dead gorgeous. He would just show up (laughs) in your territory in the mating season, and all of 21's daughters would just uh, fall in love with him and flock (laughs) over. And 21 correctly judged that this was a no good boyfriend for his daughters. And 21 was exactly right. He would try to chase 302 out of the territory. He would catch 302. And we later figured out that 302 was 21's nephew. So they were related. He would catch 302 and beat him up. But we talked about how 21 just wouldn't kill an opponent. So he would always let the bad boyfriend go. And after a while, 302 kind of figured that he could really get away with a lot of this stuff in his uncle's territory. That particular mating season, he got several of 21's daughters pregnant and abandoned them. And then we're later able to prove that spring and summer through genetics that in addition to 21 raising his own pups, his own sons and daughters, he had to raise five that had been born to the no good boyfriend. Wow. So that's why he didn't like 302. <laughs> so what pack was 302 part of? He was born in the Leopold pack, and that was formed by 21's older sister. Wow. So had wow. very similar genetics, and 302's father was one of eight's brothers. So genetically, he came from really good stock. But as in human endeavors, you can't really (laughs) count on that 
you know, whatever good qualities parents have to always come out the same way in their children, because everyone is born as an individual and everyone makes their own choices. So 302 made a lot of poor choices in, in, in his life. But does 302 change? Yes. Tell us about that, because we like happy stories. <laughs> so the reason there's a whole book about 302, and it was, it was really fun to write because I knew the trajectory of his biography, is there's so much to say about him. But after 21 died, 302 joined the Druid Peak Pack, joined 21's family. However, he totally failed in carrying out the responsibilities of an alpha male. He was challenged to a fight by a rival male from another pack. He pretty much gave up right away and ran off to save himself. He runs off door. He runs off to save himself and like leaves his pack unprotected, right? Like he's like, see, I'm out of here. And he leaves his pack. And that's exactly the opposite of what an alpha male should do. You're supposed to be willing to die to protect your family. However, what saved the day was he had arrived with sort of a bodyguard, and that was his nephew. And that was known as Wolf 480. He was quite a bit younger than 302. And 480 had a character and a personality much like 21. So 480 had to take charge of the situation. He had to fight it out with a much larger, much older male wolf that had defeated his uncle. And I watched that match, and it was just this all-out violent encounter where 480 was losing badly. He was getting beaten up. He was getting bitten. He was bleeding. I was almost at the point of yelling him just to give up and run off, but he just refused to stop. And slowly, he turned the tide of the fight, and finally, he won. So he defeated the wolf that had beat up his uncle. So therefore, like in medieval times, through the right of or the trial of combat, 480 won the right to be the Druid Peak Wolfpack Alpha Male. 302 came back. He realized that everything had changed now in the pack. So he went up to the much younger male with a tuck tail, looked him on the face, which was 302's way of acknowledging, okay, you're the alpha male. Now wow. it's no longer wow. me, it's you. And that actually suited 302 because he still had access to all the females in the pack. And the younger wolf was taking on all the responsibilities. So 302 had all the benefits and none of the difficult uh, job. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it was very well suited to his personality. Wow. This is so fascinating. So have you ever met any other wolves like 21? Or is he just alone on a pedestal? I'm tempted to say, yes. I, it would be like, sometimes when I do talks for kids, I say if there was any human character, real or fictional, that was uh, maybe like 21, I would have to say Superman. He, he was the Superman of wolves. And we've talked about him fighting and things like that, but I, I could talk for hours about how well he treated the females in his family, the pups in his family. I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. One of the things I learned from 21 is what it's really like to be a father wolf. So I would see 21 go up to a group of his young 
sons and daughters. 21 was one of the biggest wolves we've ever had, probably about 130 pounds. So he would go up to maybe a 10-pound male pup, a son, and start a wrestling match with the little guy. And 21 would wait until the little guy grabbed a little bit of the fur in one of 21's legs and just gave it the most gentle tug. And as soon as the pup did that, 21 would pretend that he'd just been yanked on his back by a much stronger opponent. (laughs) And he would pretend that he had been defeated by this little guy. And so the pup would think that, hey, I just defeated my father. I defeated the alpha male. Now I'm a big shot. Or he would start playing with the pups. He would have a group of them. And he would suddenly pretend that he was afraid of them. And he would run off with a tucked tail. And the pups couldn't resist that. They would chase their father. And of course, he would run at about maybe quarter his normal speed. And as soon as the lead pup just grabbed one of 21's hind legs and its little tiny mouth, 21 would flop over on his back that he'd just been tackled by a pup and all the other pups would surround and and climb all over their father, pretending that he was the elk that they were chasing and they had just brought him down. So he loved to pretend that he wasn't the alpha male. He loved to pretend that he wasn't the big shot, tough guy. And for boys growing up in an American family, such as myself, some of our fondest memories are when our dads would play like that with, with wrestling or baseball, whatever it was, any kind of sports game, where they would pretend to lose to us. And we always understood that they were pretending, that we actually hadn't beaten them. And in a human situation, oftentimes, especially a few generations ago, many dads, I think, found it very hard to express their feelings for how much they love their sons. They, maybe they couldn't actually say that in words, but they could get that point across when they were playing in that way, when they let their sons seemingly beat them. That was kind of my dad style. Just hearing you talk about wolves, there's so many qualities to wolves. We have so many misconceptions about wolves that the public doesn't know about. So is part of your initiatives or part of your motivation to get this information out to people so that they can have more respect for the wolves? Yes, that's exactly it. That's very perceptive. So the way that I see it is, I don't know why. But the wolves have given me a gift over the many years. They've allowed me to witness how they live out their lives, many generations of wolves. I now have over 12,000 pages of single-space notes on wolf behavior in Yellowstone. So I certainly realized that I had a tremendous responsibility to take all my observations, all the stories, some of which I've been sharing with you, and get them out in a way that they would be accessible to everyone. When I worked for the Park Service in a typical year, I would give something like 200 talks to park visitors. But I really needed to get the information out in a much wider range in the sense of publishing books. So that's why I finished up in early 2018. So I have the first three books that are already out. The fourth book is done. And you'll be pleased to know that's on alpha female walls and their importance to wolf society. 
And Jane Goodall has already written the introduction to that. And what she wrote is really, really spectacular. You may recall in her research on chimps in Africa that like wolves, they also have a matriarchal society. So in her introduction, she compares wolf society to chimp society. By the way, she also mentions, and this is especially fascinating, she writes that everyone assumed that when she was young, her dream was to go to Africa and study chimps. And she said, no, that really wasn't the case because she read a lot of books by Jack London about wolves in the Arctic and also some of the jungle books about wolves in India. So in the introduction, she said that she could have just as easily ended up a wolf researcher as a chimp researcher. Maybe she would have been the one studying wolves in Yellowstone rather than me. And you could have been in Africa studying the chimp. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the female, about what that book's about. The main character is our most famous female wolf. We knew her as the 06 female, and I have to explain that for a moment. She was born in the year 2006. She was gray. She had a sister that was a year younger, and they pretty much were identical sisters. So to separate them, one sister was the 06 female, the other was the 07 female. But getting back to 06, I can't really think of a better way to describe her, but to say in human terms, she was drop dead gorgeous. She was like a Disney princess in an animated feature where all the male wolves courted her. They pretty much lined up and she just turned up her nose at all of them. She just had no interest. She was too independent a spirit. So they would come and they would go. And if they were a little bit too, how should I say this, a little bit too pushy with her, (laughs) boy, she would just turn on them and just beat them up. (laughs) And they would just take it. They were afraid of her. She was a strong-willed female, and she just wouldn't take any guff from any guy. One of my favorite lines (laughs) is a song from the band Heart where the, the song is, if looks could kill, and the, the woman singer is, is telling the bad boyfriend, if looks could kill, you'd be lying on the floor saying, please, baby, please, don't hurt me no more. That exactly <laughs> describes 06. That's what she would do. And the males would ask her, please don't hurt me anymore, baby. And then uh, she would probably bite him even harder after saying or implying, hey, don't call me baby. So she was her own woman. And then against everything that we expected, we thought she would be single for life, that no male could ever deal with her. But when she was middle-aged, maybe the equivalent of a woman, let's say plus or minus, we'll just say middle-aged, she settled down and she ended up with two boyfriends, two brothers. Mm. And they were (laughs) way younger than she was. So let's just say middle-aged on the female side, and they were, uh, in human years, about the same as two brothers that were sophomores in high school. Oh, really? So what's that term where you have an older woman and a cougar. much younger? Boy? A cougar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah she invented that. <laughs> it worked perfectly because those brothers were really smart in the sense that they were smart enough to know they knew nothing about life. And they acknowledged that she 
was the absolute ruler of the operation. So they were totally obedient to her and they proved themselves she picked the right guys. So the point of that book was it builds up to a climax where she was in a conflict with a extremely violent and vicious rival alpha female. And it came to a point in time where she really had to depend on those two brothers when they were much older to protect the family. And I'll let you guess what's going to happen, but I'll just give you a hint that she picked the right guys to depend on. <laughs> you know, even when they were so young and experienced, she knew what she was doing. Wow. wow. Smart. Yeah. Women are really smart. smart. They are. So what about the lone wolf? Did you ever get to witness or watch a lone wolf? Yes. And it's a fascinating subject because there can be a lot of different reasons for it. Like with people, sometimes a wolf is born with a personality that it just likes to be doing his own thing or her own thing all the time. And they leave their family and they live that way by choice. That's a very rare thing. Wolves are programmed to be social animals and to find a mate and to raise a family. And then there are other times where, and this sometimes happens with people as well, there's a wolf that's born and maybe it just doesn't have very good social skills and has a hard time fitting in. And it maybe unintentionally does things that gets it in trouble with the higher ranking wolves. And so it becomes an outcast and they tend to live most of their lives alone. We've had some wolves like that. But they are social animals, just like people are. And I think it's fair to say, though, wolves not only have their own individual characters, you know, character in, in the sense of how they decide how to live their lives, how they make moral decisions, etc. We've talked about the difference between a wolf like 21 and 302, mm-hmm. but 302 later reformed his character. And then there's personality traits. We've all heard the terms extrovert, introvert. Wolves that are very social, that like to be with other wolves, like to play with, do favors for them, share food with them. They probably tend to do the best in the long run, just like people that are sharing tend to do well. And then there are other wolves that may be a little bit more selfish and they tend maybe not to do so well. Maybe they, if that's in combination with aggression, then those are two traits that are a pretty bad duo. 21's mate, 42, was probably the perfect alpha female and that she could organize the pack. She wanted to take care of everyone. She made really good decisions for everyone. She really was a perfect leader. And that made it so much easier for 21. For him to protect the family and feed the family, that was an easy job for him. And he had to depend on 42 to make all the big decisions in life. And so he just acknowledged her as the commander-in-chief, and he just assisted her. If it was a military situation, you could say that she was the commanding officer and he was the executive officer. He just carried out her commands. That's a pretty good situation for a female, right? How do you feel about people who domesticate wild animals, these shows like Tiger King? (laughs) I know that people do have wolves as pets and things. What do you think about that? It really gets into a whole large discussion that we could easily spend an hour on. I did some talks in California a couple of weeks ago to promote the redemption of Wolf 302. And one of them was a fundraising 
event for what I'll say is a wolf sanctuary, the Apex Protection Plan. And to simplify what that operation is like, is they rescue wolf-dog hybrids that have ended up in very bad situations. As far as you know, every state in the country has regulations against breeding and selling, quote-unquote, full-blooded wolves. It's not because they're vicious or violent, but they need very special care. It's just to have exotic animals. You need very special people to do that. And in many cases, like we've seen in some of these documentaries, it's very much the wrong people that end up doing it for money, and they're mistreating the animals. So they took me to the refuge. They introduced me to one of the animals. And the one that really stood out was actually the friendliest. He was an adult male, big, tough-looking guy. And all he wanted to do was meet people and be friends with them and lick their face. But he had a horrible background. He was horribly mistreated as a pup, so bad that he escaped when he was something like, I don't know, eight months old. He lived on the streets. He would try to get food out of dumpsters, whatever the local animal damage control operation was in that town was captured. He was scheduled to be destroyed because it they couldn't adopt an animal like that out. So my friends at this California sanctuary, they heard about it. They drove something like 24 hours straight to pick him up. They brought him back, gave him a good home. He's been there for years. And it's such a great emotional story because it has such a, a happy ending to it. So there's so many good people out there that have built sanctuaries where they treat these animals. And there's so much more that we can say, but maybe that covers the subject enough. Mm-hmm. It's just been incredible to have you teach us so much about how important it is to understand the wolves and the impact that they not only have on nature and the environment, but on us as well and what they can teach us. So you're a really amazing storyteller, Rick. It's incredible. Thank you. I have a very good audience today. So uh, you two are a very important part of it. Yeah, you had good questions as well. You both um, are top alpha females. In, in my book. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this. And we can't wait for all of the books. How many more books do you think you're going to try to write? I think I told you the fourth one, which will be called The Alpha Female Wolf, that's essentially done. That will be out next October. And then I am working on a fifth one. And then we're looking at doing children's books of some of the stories as well. So I'll be working with a children's author on that. And the reason for that is we want to get these stories out in a a different way that will be appropriate for younger readers to to read them. Mm -hmm. Not only so that younger boys and girls could learn about wolves, but also there's a lot of life lessons that we can learn from wolves too, especially when we think about Wolf 8, who was an underdog, was bullied and beaten up when he was young and turned out to be such a hero when he got a little bit older. Rick, thank you so much for being here today and being on Health Gig. Yes, thank you so much, Rick. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.